to the podcast. Thank you very much. Would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Stephanie Becker. I'm an associate professor at the School of Psychology at the University of Queensland, and I'm mainly doing research on attention and eye movements and a little bit awareness. Excellent. So let's go back a bit. What first interested you in psychology? Actually, I have a little bit of a weird history in that I first studied philosophy and biology at the University of Bielefeld in Germany. And after I got a degree in those two subjects, I then decided that neither one was actually really what I was interested in. So I started studying psychology. But then I needed to buy, I think, a washing machine. So I couldn't continue studying. And then one of the professors who I then contacted and said, sorry, I can't participate in your course, said, oh, Stephanie, why don't you do a PhD in psychology? And I said, well, because I don't have a degree. And he said, uh, yeah, but you have a degree in philosophy and biology, so that should be sufficient. And actually it was. It turned out that they really accepted me into the PhD program. And I did my PhD then at the same university, University of Bielefeld. Wow, yeah, definitely a bit of a complicated story. (laughs) So I can see that's how you got kind of into at least the PhD type of research. What was your PhD on? It was on attention in visual search paradigms, basically, and distraction by irrelevant distractors, how they can distract you from the main task and those effects. So once you finished your PhD, did you immediately know you wanted to stay in academic research or did you want to move on to somewhere else? Well, when I started my PhD, I was pretty unhappy because I thought I wasn't doing very well. So what happened was they put me and an eye tracker into the same room and said, well, we don't know you and we don't know the eye tracker, so you two are a good team. You get this eye tracker to work. And I was completely overwhelmed by that task and I wasn't doing very well. I wasn't making much progress. And for one year, I thought they will sack me any moment. But after that year, I actually got the hang of it and it worked pretty well. And then my first paper got accepted into a really high journal and my PhD supervisors said, oh, you can already, you're already finished. You've done eight experiments. That's the framework of a normal PhD, and I did two more papers. So I, yeah, actually in, in my PhD, I had five papers altogether. So I took off, basically. Wow, that's a bit of an incredible story. <laughs> Definitely not the normal path for an academic then. Yeah. And obviously you were then a researcher in Germany. What brought you over to Australia? Because that's a pretty big move. Yeah, well, you know, weather in Germany. <laughs> so I hated the cold weather in winter, it was dark, it was cold, it was snowing, I totally hate snow. Uh, you can't get from A to B because everything's slow and because it's iced over, you know, people are driving very carefully or not at all. And I just hated that. And I wanted to be in a country where English was the main language and that had a better climate for me. And then I actually wanted to go to New Zealand and my partner at that time then persuaded me to go to Australia because New Zealand is still pretty cold. <laughs> and he was right, so Australia was, is much better. And I saw that you got a fellowship whilst you were over here in Australia. Did that impact on how you actually continued to research in Australia? Actually, I was incredibly lucky because I had research fellowships from the start. So I came here on a postdoctoral position that was just for one year to work with a really big name in research, Roger Wellington, who was also doing exactly the same research as I've been doing in my PhD. 
And then after that, and now for about eight years, I've been employed on, on research fellowships. So I ha didn't have to do any teaching. And this is unique in Australia, right? No, in no other country would that have worked so well. So, and I still have one and a half years of uh, research fellowships left. So, yeah. And of course, you, you, I mean, I did some teaching. I volunteered for it because I didn't want to lose touch with the students and I, I enjoy teaching. But yeah, I mean, this, this has been paradise for me so far. I have no complaints at all. Do you have any plans for what you're going to do after the fellowship runs out? Are you hoping to stay here in Australia? Yeah, I do have a permanent position, actually. I was also lucky in that regard. So the last fellowship I got was the ARC Future Fellowship, and that's attached to a permanent position. So after this fellowship, I will just transition into a normal teaching and research position. Wow. Yeah, you definitely. I think it's a mix of like luck, but also very clearly that you're very talented. So Thank just you. looking at your general fields now. So you're talking a bit about kind of eye tracking. What? I, yeah, just talking about your general fields of interest. Yeah. So attention can be measured in several different ways, and the method that I used most in my PhD was eye tracking. So to really track the observer's gaze where they're looking first. That gives you a good idea where they allocate attention and what they actually see, so about their mental representation, their contents of consciousness in a way, right? Mm -hmm. And then in the last few years, I've also used fMRI and EEG with these electrodes in the cap and to, to track attention and to also really learn more about the neurophysiological correlates of attention and also eye movements and recently also more about awareness because I really think the two are tightly linked. And what do you think that this says about you, that this is what you've decided to research? Oh, maybe that I'm crap at visual search. <laughs> so I'm that person who cannot, for the life of me, remember where I put my phone and my keys. So I'm searching all day long, basically, for my stuff. I waste so much time trying to find things. And, yeah, I think many researchers are motivated by the things that they can't do very well. And that, that was definitely the case for me. So I know many colorblind researchers in vision science, and they are probably, it's, it's a similar thing. And just broadly, you kind of label what you do as cognitive and experimental psychology. Do you want to explain for kind of a non-psychologist what that actually means? Well, yeah, cognition is traditionally, of course, the science of thinking. So how do we think? How do we make inferences? How do we make predictions? All this kind of cognitive stuff. What determines our thinking? Whereas you would probably say, hey, but Steph, you're working in perception. You're looking at eye movements and vision. What does that have to do with cognition? But actually, uh, one of the great things that also Roger Remington found was that we have an immense amount of cognitive control over where we attend. And perception and cognition are really tightly interlinked so that your beliefs actually shape what you can see and the other way around. So what you see is... It's very often limited by your previous history, by the things you've learned. So learning is a huge topic about the visual system, you know. And as, as for instance, in studies of people born blind and then made to see by a surgery, they, ca they have big trouble seeing, actually. So they can see color and motion, but shapes and everything else is a complete mystery to them. And they never regain full sight again, right? Right, so just before we move on to your research, just a couple of things. What advice would you give to a uni student who's starting out at university? Oh, be engaged, potentially. So I was always very engaged, even when I was studying things 
that I wasn't 100% sure whether I wanted to continue with them and continue on that track. I was engaged. I was interested. I took things from lectures and tried to apply them to the real world, to normal situations. And I was, I was just thinking and reading a lot. And I think if you have to study, if you have to spend, let's say, four or five hours a day on these things, why not spend 10, 12 hours a day and do it properly and be an expert and become competent? Then it's so much more fun. And it's actually easy to be better than your teacher because your lecturer is very often just this little bit ahead of you. And it's, it's really easy to, to get to the same level. Wow. Well, that, that's really inspiring, to be honest. And just another piece of advice about what book I should pick up. What is your book recommendation? Well, for, um, for just general science or psychology and, and to actually hone skeptical and critical thinking, I can really recommend Bad Science by Ben Goldacre. It's a bit of a brilliant book. It's very entertaining. It's an easy read, very enjoyable, but it's also very, very critical. And it shows exactly how you can use the principles of science and use them in the real world for your own decisions, for your own private decisions. Are you going for homeopathy? Is that a good idea? What? How do you argue? How do you? How do you think better about certain things that affect you personally? Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. I'll have to pick a copy of that up. So, moving on to your research now specifically. So, you were talking before about how you look at attention. What are you currently kind of working on? I'm currently working on this interface of attention and awareness to see whether the things that we attended to are also more likely to be remembered afterwards. And that's been shown many times in in psychology, but there are also some strange things happening there. So, for instance, there are very salient art and visually salient items, like things with a high feature contrast, and it seems to be the case that we can suppress them if they are known to be irrelevant. We don't really actively attend to them, and yet, afterwards, when I ask you, was this item there or not, you can remember it better if it was salient. So there's there are these little mysteries that I'm just currently working on to try to clarify them and then maybe fuse it into a better model of attention and awareness. Okay. And you've definitely talked about kind of visual searches before, but how does that kind of integrate into your research a bit more? Well, there are several different ways to study attention. I'm not only using visual search. There's also the famous inattentional blindness task with the gorilla. You probably... I've seen that, yeah. I'm also using inattentional blindness paradigms in conjunction with visual search. The nice thing about visual search is that you can directly measure whether an item was attended or not by tracking eye movements. In in the gorilla task, that's a little bit more difficult because these real world objects they sometimes overlap and they you know they separate again. They're moving. It's a, it's a lot harder to tell where did a person actually fixate. Also because the eye tracker has an error. In you know, in those measurement error, of course, and yeah. And what about emotional expressions? Have you done any research on that? Oh yeah, that's right. Yes. So yeah, that's a research field more of my ex PhD supervisor Gernot Horstmann than myself. But I got dragged into that, and now um, because it's such a favorite subject for students and especially honor students. I've done quite a bit of research on that now. And it's funny, so when, when honor students come in and I give them a selection of topics, they almost always go for the emotional face system. Why do you think that is? I think it's less abstract than my own theory, which is the relational account, which is 
very abstract and requires a lot of knowledge about theories of attention to really appreciate the value of that theory and what it brings to the field. Whereas emotions are, you know, everybody has them. We all think they are really important in guiding our decisions and actions in everyday life. And yeah, people feel more engaged with that and it probably feels more familiar to them. And what sort of findings have you had with that sort of topic? Yes. So we've also used very often the visual search task where people have to search for an angry or happy face amongst otherwise neutral faces. And one important finding of that task was that the perceptual features of the face, so the thickness of the eyebrows, the darkness of the eyes and other dark areas in the face can guide attention very effectively. And people use that information. So if I tell you, look for the angry face, but I put a red nose on it, you will actually look for the red nose because it's easier than to look for the emotion in the face. There are, however, apart from these perceptual effects, there are also emotional effects. So it's definitely true that emotions are special and we attend preferentially to them and we are sensitive to that. And I noticed that you've done a bit of research with age effects. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, that, that was a project led by Marianne Zi and Julia Henry. And I was just the eye-tracking expert on that project, but just broadly, yeah, aging comes with a, a decline in general cognitive abilities. And at the same time, if we look at aged or older people, they, they seem to also have some qualities that we lack as younger people. Maybe more of an overview, maybe they're more like big picture guys rather than, and we are more invested in the details of everyday life. And of course, it's a, you know, because emotions are so important for interactions and how you get along with other people, it's a very important question to look at how do aged people perceive emotions and do they have any deficits in that? And does that maybe explain why older people tend to be isolated so much that it actually becomes a real mental health problem? And our research has shown that, yes, there are some deficits in emotion processing that could potentially account for some of the bad consequences that they suffer then. And you've talked about visual search, but what about color search? It's a specific form of yeah. visual search, where I just say, instead of the angry face, look for the face with the red nose or something and ignore the green-nosed faces. Yeah, so my major findings were actually in color search. So what I noticed is that instead of, when I, when I tell you look for the orange item, it really depends heavily on the context, how you search for that orange item, because we don't like to tune attention to one specific hue or one specific color. And rather, what we do is we process all the items and we compute how the target differs from the context items. And if it's continuously in the experiment, the reddest item, what you like doing and others like doing as well is they tune to the reddest item in the visual field. And that has important consequences also for traffic and, and all other kind of everyday activities because when I then present a red item, that it hugely attracts your attention even though it's really dissimilar from the target. And what that means is that the distractors that were previously thought to be effective are probably not that effective and the ones that were previous, previously thought to be ineffective can be extremely effective and really distract you and then leading to all kinds of mishaps, accidents, and so forth. And what would be the applications of this findings? 
Yeah, for instance, in, in airports, signage, or everywhere, nuclear power stations, cockpits of airplanes, everywhere where you present important information, it's actually important to present that information so that it's the most extreme color. So it doesn't matter whether it's orange or red, but it should be the reddest thing in the environment, so in the visual field. And then it has a really good chance of attracting your attention. Whereas if it just, there's something redder, you know, you probably never see it. So one thing that I noticed with what you're researching that immediately attracted my attention, at least, was the fact that you've looked tracking the gaze of dogs. <laughs> well, I've tried, but actually that was a project that never got off the ground. And one of the reasons was that most eye trackers don't do that very well. So I have a chocolate Labrador who is a very, very nice dog. She's the best. And I took her in and we tried to calibrate her with a normal human eye tracker. And that actually didn't go so well. So it took us two hours to actually make the eye tracker track the dog's gaze. And we decided then that that was a little bit too difficult to do. Nowadays, there are primate eye trackers for monkeys and, and apes. And they, with those ones, I probably have a better chance of looking at that. But, you know... Dogs have pretty impressive cognitive abilities, and it would be so interesting to really look at where they're looking, what do they recognize, what can they differentiate, what can they discriminate, can they discriminate other dogs from themselves, their owner from another person in a video, all these things. I was very interested in that, but unfortunately, I never really got around to looking at that. Well, hopefully you get to it, because it sounds like a fascinating project. Mm. So just my final question. You looked at the interplay between working memory and attention. What were the findings and applications of that research? Yeah, that's a very good question. So current research in working memory assumes that if I ask you to remember a set of different colors, let's say four different colors, that you individuate all of these colors. So this you separate a process, each different hue, and you try to remember it each different hue at each position. And so when I show you the memory display, you then go through the items and ask yourself, does this match what I have in memory? And my theory, which was originally developed for attention, basically says, no, 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 these colors all hang together in an ordered feature space. So it's it's not about orange being orange, but about orange being the reddest item or not the reddest item, right? So the colors all exist in this feature space. They're all interconnected. It's like numbers, right? So if I ask you to remember one, two, three, four, five, easy, right? You have unlimited memory capacity all of a sudden. If I ask you to remember five, two, one, three, four, ooh, that's more difficult, right? And that's exactly my approach in looking at working memory is to see our colors order like these numbers. So that is really easy to remember an ordered sequence of colors or are they really separated and individuated as all of my colleagues seem to believe? But the results are still pending, so... Okay, well, we'll have to find out at a later date, but that's okay. And is there any other future research that you can broadly talk about that you're excited to follow up with? Yes. So, again, with the relational account, which is my pet project in a way, of course, because I you know, kind of developed it or, or thought of it or formalized it or whatever, I would really love to do an fMRI study of that and to see how does the context really modulates processing of single neurons that are color sensitive. And again, previous research has often just looked at a single stimulus. And that's not a realistic condition in a way, right? Because look around. I mean, the world is full of colors and objects and they all interact. And 
as I said, one, one corollary from my research is really we do process a lot more than what other theories suppose or propose that we do. And so one important question for me would be really how does the processing of the context influence processing of the target item or of, of the item that you are currently fixating on? I think that's really under-investigated and very well worth investigating. Okay, well, thank you for sitting down with me. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.